0: to Shelter in Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming, Facebook living, Zooming, and soon YouTubing with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, on the south side of, our, of Boston. Now six months into this shelter in place. Tonight, our 24th episode of Shelter in Solidarity kicks off the month of October with a very poignant an appropriate yet timely episode focused on mass murder and the making of our times. And I'm joined today as our lead host for this special episode, uh, co-producer and host of this episode, Joseph Nevins from Vassar College, an author of a number of books, including co-author of the recent A People's Guide to Greater Boston. But Joe will be guiding us on an international people's history today with the help of three terrific guests, which he has brought to our program. Joseph, uh, Joe, it's great to see you again. How are you doing? Make sure to unmute yourself here on Shelter and Solidarity. We can only see you when we hear you. Joe, how are you?
1: Good, thanks. You can see I'm a guest host. I don't even remember to unmute my mic.
0: I appreciate that. It makes me look professional, you know (laughs) what I mean? I I need the help I can get. So Joe, uh, it's really great to be turning uh, the the reins over to you today, to another Joe here for what I think is a very, very powerful show. So I'm just gonna kick it to you and you you can take it from there. Thanks, Joe.
1: Very good, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be a guest host with Shelter and Solidarity. So, 55 years ago today, October 1st, 1965, saw the kidnapping and murder of six Indonesian generals. Killings at the high command of the Indonesian military quickly blamed on the Communist Party of Indonesia, which is known as the PKI. As suggested by the title of a book written by one of our guests tonight, that book being Pretext for Mass Murder, what took place on October 1st, 1965 and its framing was an excuse for the military to kill on a horrific scale. In what the US Central Intelligence Agency called, quote, one of the worst mass murders of the 20th century, the Indonesian military and its paramilitary allies targeted the PKI and its alleged sympathizers. They killed hundreds, many hundreds of thousands over a several month period, brought Major General Suharto to power and wiped out what had been the largest communist party in the world outside of China and the Soviet Union. It was a party that had broad and deep roots in Indonesian society with many members in the professional and middle classes in addition to the working class and in, in the Indonesian military itself. It also manifested the geographical, ethnic and religious diversity of the country. And despite the enormity of what happened in Indonesia in destroying the PKI, There's never been any accountability for the reign of terror, either in Indonesia or in the United States, which aided and abetted the slaughter in various ways. So as Joe mentioned, we have three terrific guests with us this evening to help us uh, understand what took place and its larger significance for Indonesia and the world. I'll introduce them alphabetically. Our first guest is Vincent Bevins, who's joining us from London. He's originally from Southern California. He's a journalist who has worked in Venezuela among other countries, From uh, 2009 to 11, he worked for the Financial Times in London and Sao Paulo. From 2011 to 2016, he was the Brazil correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. In 2017 and 2018, he served as the correspondent for Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. This, of course, brought him to Indonesia. His latest book is The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. Guest guest is John Rusa, who was raised in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. John's a longtime activist and organizer with the East Timor and Indonesia Action Network. He's now a professor of history at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. John is the author of the book I mentioned earlier, "Pretext for Mass Murder: The September 30th Movement and Suharto's Coup d'Etat in Indonesia." His most recent book, just out from the University of Wisconsin Press, is "Buried Histories." The anti-communist massacres of 1965-66 in Indonesia. Finally, our third guest is Krithika Varagor. Krithika is a journalist, author, essayist, and humorist from New Jersey. She joins us this evening. Well, she's joining us from New Jersey, but she lives in New York now. Her writings have appeared in a wide range of publications. From 2016 to 2020, Critica reported widely on religion and politics in Southeast and South Asia, which included regular coverage of Indonesia for the Guardian and the Financial Times. Since early 2020, she's been based in the United States covering topics, including racial justice and policing. Uh, and this includes a very interesting series recently for the New York Review of Books related to the, killings of George Flo- the killing of George Floyd and its aftermath. Her new book is The Call, Inside the Global Saudi Religious Project a significant slice of which focuses on Indonesia. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, Because we don't have a lot of time, I'd like to jump right into our questions. Much of what took place in 1965, 66 in Indonesia is little understood within the country. Ignorance of those events is perhaps even more pronounced outside of Indonesia, despite the gravity and enormity of what took place. Which today the world's fourth largest country To get things rolling, I'd like to ask each of you if you'd talk a little bit about how you first learned about what happened in Indonesia during the period in question, as a way of giving us a broader sense of what occurred and why we should care. And I'd like uh, to start with you, John, then Krithika, and then Vincent.
2: Yeah. Thanks, John, and thanks for everybody else involved in putting this on. Um, I first learned about, um, the events of 1965 66 in Indonesia, uh, perhaps in a way that many of you here learned about it, which was uh, from reading Chomsky and Herman's classic book, um, The Washington Connection and Third World Fascism. I read it back in the 1980s when I was an undergraduate. And uh, then when I had the chance to go to Indonesia uh, in the first in the mid 1990s, um, I, and I started to meet some of the, the uh, victims of that uh, uh, violence of the f- largely former political prisoners, you know, I, I thought this was um, a really important story of world significance and yet the literature about it was still rather skimpy, you know, it still w- didn't go into a lot of the detail about it and um, even from the left, which had written about it and the way that Chomsky and Herman did as a sort of constructive bloodbath and um, for for the United States, um, unlike many other people who weren't on the left who just wanted to ignore it. Um, but still the information about all of the events um, the pretext for the mass murder, as well as the mass murder itself, um, as well as uh, other events besides, this wasn't really all that clear. And so um, I started in uh, 2000 to do original um, oral history research with a group of Indonesians. And and only in that way was I able to sort of learn um, more about what happened because these events had been so buried 32-year um, dictatorship. Many of the killings were disappearances, which didn't leave a lot of traces. It didn't leave a lot of evidence. A whole generation, you know, over 32 years, was sort of silenced, and and um, and many of them passed away during that time. Who would be able to speak to those events? So it was a really, you know, sort of difficult process of trying to reconstruct the details of of what happened in these. Events. John, just to follow up quickly on
1: something you said, you referred to it as a constructive bloodbath for the United States. Could you just briefly say what you meant by that?
2: Yeah, so Chomsky and Herman made a distinction between two, two different kinds of bloodbaths. Um, there were some massacres, if they were committed by communists, that were the US deemed as nefarious, as, as bad, um, as something to be condemned. But when it came to what happened in Indonesia, the United States said, you know, it was fine. It it was just sort of ordinary Indonesians um, who committed the killings. Uh, Nobody's really responsible for it. Just forget about it. Uh, Let's move on. Um, The army did its best. the communists have only themselves to blame. And so all of these kinds of excuses to, to minimize the the tragedy, to uh, excuse it, justify it, gloss over it, ignore it, et cetera, were employed by the US government and people who sort of align themselves with the US government's uh, perspective on this, um, as opposed to, let's say, the Khmer what the Khmer Rouge did. Um, Although even there, the United States, uh, (laughs) that's another story altogether, Uh, but United States supporting the Khmer Rouge in the 1980s after they had committed the the killing.
1: Okay, thank you. We might get there, uh, but I'd like to turn to Kritika, please.
3: Um, Hi, so uh, my first knowledge of, 1965 was with Joshua Oppenheimer's film, The Act of Killing, which came out when I was in college. And I distinctly remember going to see it when I was in college with a bunch of my friends. And I mean, as far as introductions to Indonesia, current affairs, or holidays goes, that was a pretty good one. So I started off on the right foot. Uh, but I have to admit that I, you know, qu- I quickly squandered my lead once I actually moved to Indonesia as a journalist in 2016. Um, in, in October 2016 to report on religion and politics. Um, and I quickly got swept up in the political drama of the time, which was this kind of Islamist trial of a prominent Christian politician. And from there on, it kind of careened into a lot more reporting on religion and fundamentalism. But I would say the, the biggest, um, I mean, I would say that 1965, 1966 are nowhere to be found if you're not looking for them in Jakarta. So. For almost a year, it was very easy for me to not report on anything related to it, even though I was an American there and America had a huge role as John has written in his two great books now um, in, in the, the coup itself and the killings thereafter. Um, So I luckily, one of my first friends that I made there was a great Indonesian journalist who was involved in a project called Remember 1965, which collected testimonies of people who had survived um, and and had had a great website related to that. Um, But other than that, it was almost never talked about. And you definitely didn't need to know about it. And it wasn't until I kind of checked in about I, you know I went home to America after a year and kind of when I came back it was in September which is uh, typically a time of the year when this anti-PKI or anti-communist um, whisperings start up again in the discourse even though there is really no one there's there's no PKI in Indonesia anymore um, but I made it a point to seek out more about it, and this was after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had made some kind of mild inroads. Um, so I I found people on both sides of it. I attended you know screenings of this infamous propaganda film called um, you know the, the the it's like a Suharto era uh, propaganda film about this coup. It's called Getiga Pulu S. I can't remember what it's called in English. Um, with people who like fervently believed in the propaganda and like had fond lived on in that kind of kitschy way. I also um, started to meet uh, a few survivors, very old at this point, definitely not as many as Vincent, um, who's researched it much more extensively than me in in the same time period. But I did meet a few survivors, like Bejo Untung, who survived imprisonment and was kind of like a one-man, um, one-man party searching for some of these mass graves that the government for a long time didn't claim existed. All this is to say that it was kind of in the fringes of my time as a reporter there, but it's remarkable how profound the silence is inside Indonesia. And you could really live your life there and even make a living as a journalist of current affairs there without having to deal too much with this really, really dark episode.
1: I think you referenced Joshua Oppenheimer's film, The Act of Killing, and did your, so prior to that time, you had, prior to seeing that film, you had no knowledge of what had transpired in Indonesia? Is that correct?
3: No, I had
1: no idea. And was your was your having seen the film part of the reason why you ended up in Indonesia as a reporter?
3: Um I don't think so. It was definitely one of the major cultural touchstones in my mind when I thought about Indonesia, but I was more interested by that time in um, the lived um, religion and democratic traditions there. So I was interested in it being the world's largest Muslim majority country and their unique experiences with democracy and religion and fundamentalism in recent years.
4: Nice. Okay. Thank you. Vincent, please. Yeah, hi and uh thanks so much for inviting me for for, for everyone that's here um yeah like Kritika, the first time i ever heard about 1965 was when i saw the act of killing the josh Oppenheimer film uh, i was living in brazil and i remember being really profoundly affected by it emotionally but i admit i didn't really get it like i didn't know exactly what indonesia was and i didn't know what happened outside of that really well done close-up on uh violence and humanity and then it just kind of fell away for, for years. I didn't think about Anita for a long time. It was sort of random Then ended up moving there in, in 2017. Um, and I got there a little bit after Kritika did. And I did get there right in this period that she described where there was a brief resurgence in this sort of fantastical accusation that the PKI is returning. Um, and so one of the first things I did when I got there is I read John Ruse's, um classic book, Pretext for Mass Murder um, and as I started to do reporting on Indonesia and, and Southeast Asia in general, I co- sort of was just shocked. Like this story is underneath every other story. Like it's it's lurking in the shadows, no matter where you look but no one's talking about it. Um, and I became really interested in trying to figure out why this was and what had really happened. Um, and when I discovered that there were some links between this story and Latin America um, countries where I had worked and where I knew the languages um, I I started to really think, oh, maybe there's something, a tiny bit that I can maybe add here. Uh, Like all of the really heavy lifting had been done uh, over the decades by great historians, like John Russo and Bradley Simpson and so many Indonesian activists within the country. But when I saw, okay, this connects back to where I just lived a few years ago, where else does it connect to? Is there a way to try to um, sort of really forcefully put this story back in 20th century history. That's when I, I sort of really dedicated myself to it. But um, yeah, it was it was it was the act of killing, and then John Rus's first book, uh, and then those two bits of 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 uh, uh, um, knowledge changed the way that I looked at everything in contemporary Indonesia until I sort of got um, became obsessed with it.
1: So, without giving away your entire book, the Jakarta Method, you referenced. Uh, coming, becoming aware of a linkage to right. Brazil, particularly. I assume you're referring to, right? So, could just briefly, how did you, how did that linkage reve- reveal itself to you, and what are you referring to in making the connection between uh, Indonesia and Brazil?
4: Yeah, so um, it was already fairly well known, although the the like the literature on it was sort of scattered and sometimes wrong that. Um, in, during the government of Salvador Allende, the word Jakarta was used as part of a terror campaign to intimidate the left. And Jakarta signified um, at that moment, mass murder. It meant, we're going to do to you what they did to the Indonesian communists. Um, and, and, I, and that was sort of in the air, but then I sort of really looked into it and found out, was this really true? How did it actually work? Who did it? And that was very fascinating. But then I also went back to Brazil and started talking to all the experts um, on Brazilian Cold War history, and they said, oh, no, 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 here we also, at the exact same time, had something called Operation Jakarta, or just Operation Jakarta. And again, Jakarta signified mass murder. And in both cases, the threat that was made um, was materialized, right? Jakarta did come to, to South America. And in many, many cases, I looked further and further, there was more, this this pops up, uh, this little sort of cultural meme pops up um, all over the place. The, the use of the word Jakarta to signify mass murder and to celebrate it when it's directed against the left.
1: Very good, thank you. I'd like to move to another question, if that's okay. Um, All of you have interviewed people who have some sort of relationship to the 1965, 66 period in Indonesia. I mean, Kritika, you just spoke to that a bit. Um, People, you know, whether we're talking about survivors, loved ones of someone killed, perpetrators, or someone seeking an honest accounting, of what took place. I'd like to ask each of you if you could just share a story with us in relation to one of these encounters to help us appreciate the complicated ways in which 1965-66 unfolded and reshaped Indonesian society. So if we could start with you, Kritika, and go to Vincent and then John.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, I, uh, I came across i'm pretty confident although i'll defer to john vincent i don't think there are any members of the the in Indonesia remaining today. But I did notice, I arrived in Indonesia at a time of great political turmoil, which continued for like a year and change after I got there. And I went to a lot of demos and rallies and protests where like Islamist protests, where you would see people along with their other political signs holding signs that said um, Tolak Pekai or like stop the Indonesian Communist Party. Um, and you see this quite, quite a bit. And it was very confusing to me because I was like, what are they, opposing. Um, and this kind of came, it, it was kind of this like cult, like this persistent meme or discourse to fight communism, even though there was, there had not been a communist party for decades in Indonesia. It just became part of this kind of greater Islamist populist movement that was there in 2016 to 2018. Um, so I wanted to get into the skin of that a little bit. Why did people, what, what were they getting at here? So this came to a head in September 2017 or so when this anti-Pekai movement was, this new anti-Pekai movement was cresting again for some reason. And I, um, I came across this movement called um, or G- uh, or the anti-communist youth movement of Indonesia. And they had been doing a lot of WhatsApp propaganda. They were behind this kind of scary raid at the Jakarta Legal Aid Institute that Vincent has referenced in his book, um, where these activists tried to hold a remembrance event for the victims of 1965. And they kind of made this, you know, this kind of really crazy raid where the police arrested everyone. And I was like, who are these militia groups? Why is there even a youth anti communist movement in Indonesia today? So I interviewed one of their leaders, who is this. A um, guy called Rahmat Himran, who's from Manado, uh, an island in Eastern Indonesia in Sulawesi, who claims that his parents were almost killed by communists, and he has taken up this mantle of being anti-communist himself. In practice, this just meant that they were kind of this guerrilla militia group, but it had been surprisingly, you know, they had attracted Definitely dozens, if not hundreds of members, um, active members in Jakarta by the time I was there in 2017. And I just, I did a little profile of him and this um, anti-communist ghosts that remain in Indonesia today. And I just think it's really interesting because to the extent that people cannot talk about the actual mass killings, the actual victims of 65 and 66, it's really interesting to me that the anti- Um, anti-communist discourse is still periodically picked up, especially by young people. Um, And I think part of that is because of the very concerted propaganda effort of the Suharto era to make everyone watch this film. And to this day, I mean, just yesterday, despite COVID-19, the president of Indonesia, um, Joko Widodo held a uh, Sila Remembrance Day At the crocodile hole, which is where this kind of coup happened in East Jakarta, even despite, you know, despite the coronavirus so they make a point of using September 30th to push this nationalist narrative of what happened that day. So it's interesting to me, based on this young guy in his 30s, who was born long after the PKI was outlawed um, that he felt so passionately about it that he created this kind of like militia group.
1: So, given that the PKI is not present, who is this. Who were these groups opposing?
3: They were, they had elective affinities with uh, kind of Islamist guerrilla movements like the Islamic Defenders Front or the FPI. So there were a lot of tiny slender groups that fell under that umbrella that all kind of protested together and came together in these big you know demonstrations like um, on November 11th and uh, in the year after that.
1: Thank you, Kritika. Vincent, would you like to jump in?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So very unlike Kritika's, uh, the person that Kritika spoke about, uh, my person has been alive for a very long time um, and her story sort of weaves through so many things that I sort of try to make her the main character in the book. And uh, Her name is and she was born when, uh, not in Indonesia, but in the Dutch East Indies. Um, she grew up um, not knowing Indonesians, learning Dutch in school and realizing very quickly that this was a racist society in a racist world. Um, she lived through the Japanese occupation of Indonesia, which she and her family and many Indonesians thought at first might be some kind of relief from uh, white racism. It turned out not to be that at all. And then she went to the Netherlands and took part in the anti-colonial struggle um, with her husband, who was very active on the left. So when Indonesia was finally born as a country that they could you know, fully fully realized country back in 1949, she and her husband, who was uh, eventually um, a high-ranking member of the Communist Party, not that high, but but certainly an important official, uh, participated in constructing Indonesia, this, this thing that she never thought would actually exist, um, and that uh, she had fought her whole life to create. Um, in uh, She ended up being a translator, uh, because she spoke many, many languages for one one of the publications uh, founded in uh, the wake of the Bandung conference in 1955 so she was very active in this attempt to bring all of the countries of the global south um, of the the formerly colonized world the third world movement together and when 1965 comes she and her husband both suffer very horribly um, uh, her husband never emerges from prison and she moves back to the Netherlands where she which is where she lives now um, and she is still fighting every day to spread the word about what happened in indonesia even though she's 94 years old and the reason her story really resonates with me is um well there's two reasons one is that uh she owned indonesia as a place that she could live that that someone a left-leaning person could actually exist within only existed for um 16 years, right? So from 1949 to 1965, she got to live in her own country and that was it out of the 94 years of her life. And she and many other exiles have the same situation. They felt this brief moment where they could have their own country and have it have its path be determined by Indonesians um, even if those Indonesians run on the left and that was taken away and her husband's life was taken away too. Um, but also uh, I talked to her on the phone the other day and, and she is very happy, you know that people are talking about this again, but not only because of her story, but because she's so, so knowledgeable. She always wants to stress that you have to put what happened in 1965, the relationship between the United States and Britain and Indonesia in 1965, in the long history of hundreds of years of Western European uh, colonization and exploitation of the global South. She says, don't ever stop talking about colonialism. Don't ever start talking about um, the Netherlands, because what happened to us right afterwards was a continuation in a different form of hundreds of years uh, of direct colonization. So, Francesca's story really like brought together a lot of things for me about the 20th century, and um, uh, I think is her is is her, her life is really instructive um, um, uh, for for Indonesians and for everybody else. That's
1: a powerful story. So, Vincent, today is there a significant Indonesian? expat community in the Netherlands?
4: Yep, yes. Uh, yeah, Amsterdam is probably where the most uh, live. I mean, I'm t- I could be wrong here. There's a few in London, a few in Berlin, but yeah, the, there's if you go, if you poke around the Netherlands, a bit, I mean, it's such a small country, you meet a lot of people that introduce you to other people that are part of the exile community that have been there for a very long time, yeah. Okay.
1: Very
2: good, thank you. John, please. I guess I'll talk about a um, man that I interviewed um, first for the first time about 20 years ago in Bali. I'll call him Wayan, he's still alive. Um, he was from a very, I'll, I'll talk about Bali because I figure maybe some of the viewers in here have been to Bali. It's one part of Indonesia that's pretty well known. One effect of 19... 19- army takeover of the state after 1965 was that Indonesia became pretty much invisible on the world scene. It had been such a vocal advocate of non-alignment before and Sukarno was such a kind of outsized figure on the world stage and um, was really making a point of trying to be grand, put Indonesia on the map to make people realize that Indonesia is an independent country. Um, And then after 65, it becomes just this sort of servant of the United States and becomes very, very quiet. So as the Vietnam War is going on, you know, U.S. involvement is increasing in March 1965. After that, um, Indonesia is quiet then after October 1965 and isn't the largest country in Southeast Asia. It isn't in a position to um, uh, or it doesn't want to... um, Uh, even protest what the U.S. is doing in in Vietnam. Now, to come back to my friend uh, in Bali, coming from a very poor family of illiterate peasants, um, what was important for him was to get an education about this broader world, to get an education about what Indonesia was, this sprawling archipelago, and to become aware of sort of international politics and what Sukarno was talking about when he was leading these campaigns about um, uh, against uh neocolonialism when he was talking about Britain and the United States and Malaysia and so forth. Um, and the party, the Communist Party, provided a way for him to become better educated, for him to learn how to read even. Um, the, the party supported a lot of anti-illiteracy campaigns. Um, so there was, um, and, uh, you know, directly contacted poor people who the other political parties didn't bother with. And they were able to become such a large party because of this attentiveness that they had towards um, all of these, people living in neighborhoods that were considered too dirty for the you know, bourgeois politicians to even enter. Um, so there were a lot of committed activists of the party who were engaged in what I described in the book, Buried Histories as a kind of Gramscian form of, of politics, of, of really winning over um, the, um, the, the civil society. And um, so Patwayan in Bali um, was participating in a lot of these event cultural events dancing and singing for crowds of people as part of a land reform campaign and land reform was one a key issue in Bali before 1965. So um, and all you know groups of people in all the different villages who had been excluded from land ownership and marginalized were organizing through the pki and were being very creative and there's a lot of growth around the party before 1965 um so it was a time of he was great he he loved it but you know when the first time i met him and interviewed him it was he didn't sort of want to admit that he really been part of the party before 1965. It was only later, once he sort of trusted me when he saw what I was writing, when he saw that when he sort of gained the greater trust in me that he had said, you know, look, I was supporting revolution, then, you know, and I still do. Um, and that he was, uh, you know, his, he had, he's had to live for decades. With a kind of suppression of the love that he had for that time that Vincent was talking about, the sort of one time where he and people like him of um, of the poor in Indonesia could feel like they were, you know, history was moving in their direction for once. And um, he, but his sort of public persona was to downplay all of that. Out Out there, John, let me just give one quick follow
1: up. You said you referenced like a Gramsci formation. Could you explain what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, actually, it's in one of the chapters of Buried Histories, and it actually deserves a much longer treatment than I gave it. Um, But what I meant was that uh, Indonesian politics in this period from 1949 to 1965 was where there was a kind of contestation uh, for control over society, civil society organizations, whether it's peasant associations, uh, trade unions, uh, journalists association. Uh, the woman that um, Vincent referenced was a, was a journalist and uh, she was, uh, and there was also this Asia Africa Society, uh, various organizations of Asia Africa, Asia Africa Journalists Association, Asia Africa Writers Association. Um, so there were all these kinds of organizations that the PKI really fought hard to capture, to say you know we're in control of these organizations and to influence it. And they used the term hegemony within their own literature, and to say we were we were gaining a hegemony and. In early 1965, they really felt like they had gained a hegemony um, over the civil society, that they were an important player there, um, sort of digging, in Gramscian's terms, digging trenches. Um, Very good. Well, one of
1: the things that I'd like to follow up on is, and you've spoken to this a bit, John, is sort of why was the Communist Party so attractive to so many in Indonesia? Right, uh, But before we move on to questions, we have a public service announcement from Joe Ramsey.
0: Yeah, so really enjoying the discussion so far. I just want to remind those who may be new uh, to Shelter and Solidarity, that is a regular part of our program. We'll, we will open up discussion uh, and question and answer from the live Zoom participants. And sometimes even those on Facebook, if they can write uh, their question there. And so around eight o'clock, maybe a little later with the way this discussion is going so rich and so deep, uh, we will. Uh, hear from your voices as well so please don't hesitate to jot a question in the chat box or at least indicate that you'd like to speak and our producers will make sure that we work you in after we uh, hear initial comments from our from our great guests thanks joe
1: thank you so in terms of the next question um there's an indonesian intellectual activist political figure by the name of hilma farid and he said that we should think of the mass killings in Indonesia, not only as an attack on a political party, but as one against the working class. In addition to class, I wanna raise the issue of religion, not least because of Indonesia's religious diversity and the fact that many presented or perceived the BKI as a godless or anti-god entity, but also because of its status as the world's largest Muslim majority country. My question is, how do matters of class and religion help us comprehend the anti-left killings in Indonesia in 65, 66, or in the broader world during this period, right? And how the slaughter is remembered and forgotten today. And if you, in responding to this, if you want to help us also appreciate like sort of what was the attraction of the Indonesian co- Communist Party? I mean, John spoken um, eloquently so attractive before. Of course it was more than the poor that were members of the Indonesian Communist Party. They could help give us an appreciation for that. So I'd like to start with you Vincent and then go to John and then Krithika, please.
4: Yeah, um, so I want I'll, I should really leave the more intricate details of the class dynamics domestically to John who knows a lot about more about this than I do. But what I would what I'll start by saying is that this was really a, a victory, uh, sorry a defeat for working class politics, worldwide right this was a huge blow to movements around the world that wanted to put forward working class power as a long-term project especially in the global south but anywhere now um this took place uh, in 1965 took place in a part of uh, human history in which that kind of a politics the the presentation of the working classes as, as as central to a political project could be demonized dehumanized and ultimately Exterminated. And, and Indonesia 1965 wasn't the first time this happened, of course. Um, after the US backed coup in Guatemala in 1954, there was the intentional um, extermination of leftists. After the Baath coup, the Baath party coup in Iraq in 1963, there was the mass extermination of leftists, on a, but on a much smaller scale, both in both cases than Indonesia 1965. But when we finally get to this huge, traumatic blow to the left worldwide, Um, although it's been sort of forgotten about in the English speaking world since it was (laughs) a big, big deal at the time, the global left, um, often took the lesson that we can't do this democratically or peacefully. Um, we're going to be killed if we try something like that, the global right, as I uh, discussed earlier, took the lesson like, Oh, we can just kill whoever we want, say they're communists. And then the United States will help us clean up the mess afterwards or help us hide, um, bodies and this i I try to argue over and over was a a really big turning point for the possibility of left politics on on planet earth and and perhaps we still live in this this era of human history in which that kind of a politics can be um demonized dehumanized and ultimately exterminated and it's that that era is probably called the, the the era of u.s hegemony um um which started, you know, basically after World War II, and you know, it continues until now, though despite the fact that it's in decline. So it was a real defeat for the global working class. To go back to Indonesia really quickly, just on the religion question, I'm sure John knows a lot more about this one too than I. Um, the idea since 1965 that communism, leftism, was anti-Islam, anti-religion, and anti-Indonesian is now hegemonic. Uh, so hegemonic that it's hard even to, to point to the facts beforehand. And those facts are that in the 30s or 40s or 50s, early 60s, the idea that being a communist was somehow antithetical to indonesian or to religion or Islam would have been very surprising to all of to a lot of people active uh, in, the, in the, uh, the, the anti-colonial movement. The Muslim communists; they were quite active. Um, Sukarno, who collaborated um, very effectively with both uh, Star Islam, the Islamic uh, Union, and the, the Communist Party, um, but all of a sudden, in this violent reversal of what Pancasila means and what Indonesianness means and what Islam means and what communism means, you get this opposition between any kind of leftism and religion um, and. In the battle for hegemony, at least in until now, that that story, that that lie, I think, has has won. They, it, it's still hege- hegemonic to this day. So we're still li- we're living, sort of, um, sadly, I think, in a world in which kind of the bad guys won, uh, and we have to sort of piece together how to tell that story and, and where to go next from it. But um, I think I, I absolutely agree with that quote that it was a, a defeat for the working class. If even if, as you said, a lot of people in the Indonesian Communist Party were not in the kind of Marxian working classes we would think of it elsewhere.
1: You know, for those of us in the over 50 crowd, um, one of the ways we learned about, or mislearned about Indonesia 65, 66 was Mel Gibson's film, The Year of Living Dangerously. And uh, what do you think Vincent is The Year of Living Dangerously has never ended, right?
2: Um, John. Please. Yeah, just um, on that point, I mean, one thing that I've been trying to do in my books is to um, get away from these Orientalist stereotypes about Indonesia that you see on display in that film, *The Year of Living Dangerously*, where Indonesia is just some exotic country where violence is normal. That if somebody hears about, um, you know, mass murder in Indonesia. Um, in the West, they'll think yeah, it's that what do you expect? Uh, third world society—it's chaotic, it's it backward, it doesn't—you know—and I'm trying to show the opposite: that this was really shocking, that the, these killings were unexpected, that they came as a surprise, that they were um, that they were atrocities, that they left scars am- with, for the perpetrators. Um, at, you know, even the even the perpetrators—they left scars on the bystanders, and of course, the you know greatly damaged um, uh, the families of the victims. So it was, um, you know, it—it's it, not. There's an author who's written about this as as with the title "Extremely Violent Societies." Indonesia is classified as one of those societies, and I think that's exactly wrong. Um, the
1: United so, States is not one of those extremely violent societies, I imagine. I so said, the United States is not one of those extremely yeah, yeah, violent societies, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, with all of its nuclear warheads and <laughs> police and ICE and everything else, uh, and militias and so on. Um, so, the um, you know that's one thing I've been I've been trying to get, even as I've been writing about the mass murder, I've been trying to contextualize it in a way and. Exp- explain it in a way that doesn't rely upon these you know, assumptions about the nature of the society. Um, and you asked about religion. And, and one thing that I would um, mention in that regard that has been buried, have been forgotten about, is that there was a tradition in Indonesia that um, was fairly prominent before 1965, which married Islam and communism, where there was a, you know, you can roughly call it the liberation theology, meaning that there were Muslim, you know, uh, scholars who would say the important thing about Islam is service to the poor and the oppressed. That if you want to be a good Muslim, you need to fight oppression. You need to fight colonialism. You need to, you know, and so forth. And if you're just getting money from the rich. Uh, and talking about it as a religion, but not attending to um, the concerns of the poor, um, then you're not a, being a good Muslim. That kind of, of version of Islam was really destroyed after 1965. And you get then the kind of, of Islamic formations that uh, Kritika has been um, so wonderfully documenting in her work.
1: I want to get to critical, but John, let me just ask you a quick follow-up question. I mean, I've read your latest book, and I think you really do a fantastic job showing how surprising, shocking these killings were, right? For all sorts of reasons, not given, not least given the strength and in um, all sorts of ways of the Indonesian Communist Party, right? So, what explains it? And <laughs> uh, that's obviously a huge question, but can you still little okay. to, to think yeah. about?
2: Yeah, 15 seconds. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, some things are fairly obvious that you have an anti you have anti-communist groups that are looking for a kind of permanent solution to the Communist Party. are looking to wipe it out forever. Um, the one thing that I would emphasize here would be um, The army, as it's taking power, is dependent upon aid from the United States and is thinking that if we're going to stay in power for a long time, we need aid from the United States and we need a lot of investment. And so the killing of communists is a way of proving to the United States that they are worthy of all of this promise or all of this potential investment and and foreign aid. there was, you know, I don't have the sort of detailed documentation um, uh, of it, but there's one exchange which is in a, one of the declassified U.S. documents where a representative of Suharto's group, Suharto's the main general in the army leading this anti-communist campaign, the representative goes to the embassy and says, how much are these dead bodies worth to you? What are we going to get? in risk in as a kind of compensation for this. And um, so that the, these killings were really unnecessary. That's one of my points in terms of domestic politics that the killings could have been what, I, what I've mentioned, but there is John, you s- cut
1: out for a second there. You, you said the killings were unnecessary things yes. could have been otherwise and then
2: um, um, but that so within domestic indonesian politics it could have been um the the repression of the pki could have been done without so many so many deaths um the fact that there were deaths one reason among many though is this idea of proving to the united states that they are Uh, that the army is engaging in the permanent destruction of the PKI in order to get aid from the United States. Thank you, John.
1: Krithika, as John mentioned, you've written in very valuable ways about uh, contemporary Islamic formations in Indonesia. Um, If you wanna speak to that in relation to the question or you wanna speak to some aspect, other aspect, please feel free to go ahead.
3: Sure, um, thanks so much, John. You know, I think the godless communist trope that you mentioned was definitely persistent as evident in my time there and the example I talked about earlier. That's kind of why anti-PKI became swept up as under this umbrella of piety and projecting your Islamic identity. It's also worth noting that something I've written a lot about which is Saudi influence in Indonesia really started right after the coup uh, when when, when, you know, it, this was already starting under the first president, but Mohammed um, Datsir, the first prime minister was fully sidelined and he kind of opened this pipeline of funding to Saudi Arabia. Um, but one thing I really want to talk about in terms of the, the long-term effect on the working class and politics and progressive politics is that 1965, Um, and the coup really turned Indonesia into what the Australian scholar Max Lane has called the country with no left. There is no meaningful left in Indonesia today. And to me, um, it's the source of this kind of bloodless quality to Indonesian politics today, where it is a huge democracy. It's the third largest democracy in the world. Every time that there's an election and it's called the Pesad democracy, of democracy. Um, But what's at stake, especially in national politics, is almost nothing. Um, It's this very personality-based politics. And there's no party that can meaningfully advocate for working class reforms or more benefits or anything like that. The organized infrastructure is very, very um, small because there's always a risk if you go too far with your demands, you're going to fall into this this PKI designation, which as recently as a year ago, was used to put environmental activists in jail. So like in Kalimantan, um, environmental activists have been jailed for PKI-based sedition. So it's like this kind of absurd claim that has this, it haunts all kinds of activism in Indonesia today. Um, So I think that the very long tail of this coup and what it did to uh, progressive and leftist energies in Indonesia when it was a post-colonial country, and there were quite a lot of them, is is still being felt today. It's really hard to advocate for meaningful reforms. I've written a lot about, a fair amount about labor issues and labor unions and things like that. And they're constantly towing this line where if they go too far with their ass, they're gonna be like, Pekai. So you can see what that would do to, um, you know, even, you know, you can see what that would do to the psyche of someone trying to push for any meaningful reforms. Um, So, you know, um, when the last presidential election in Indonesia between, it was, a, it was a repeat of the previous one. And this kind of thing is symptomatic of Indonesian democracy today, where people are running, it's a huge democracy, great, but like not much is at stake. One person might be slightly more militaristic than the other, but the meaningful issues are not on the table. So to me, one of the longest term effects of this on working class people is just it kneecap their ability to organize this but, and, and to have like any kind of representation in electoral politics. It's really difficult.
1: Well, John earlier referenced um, sort of an Indonesian version of liberation theology within Islam. Do we see any legacy of that, any manifestations of that today in contemporary Indonesia?
3: I definitely think that that very brief kind of Marxist Islamist to progressive nexus uh, evaporated in the sixties. I, w- I mean, definitely a lot of large Islamic civil society organizations like NU are doing amazing social work. So there's a lot of social work being done um, under by Islamic organizations to this day, but I don't think any of them would call themselves progressive or leftist like that kind of formation disbanded with all of this other stuff.
1: Okay. Joe, let me just ask you a question. Do we- I have time for one more question or should we go to the audience? For... Um,
0: well, we certainly do. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm interested to ask a question. I know we have three or four people who have who've indicated as such, but I, I think we could certainly do another question to the, to, to the audience. I mean, to the guests before we go to the audience. Sure. Okay, maybe just uh, shorter answers and we'll leave some space for audience participation.
1: Yeah. So the show shelter and solidarity is concerned with advancing uh, a broad politics that we might characterized as progressive or even left. So what lessons did the left outside of Indonesia draw from what took place? Or what lessons can progressive forces in Indonesia, the United States or elsewhere draw today? So I'd like to start with you, Vincent, then Kritika, and then John.
4: Yeah, so the first, so yeah, the first part of the question, uh, uh, I, I alluded to the answer earlier, um, very quickly, it's but it was quite chilling, right? So you had groups around the world that were paying very close attention to the largest unarmed uh, socialist party uh, in history, I think, um, and they came to the conclusion that oh, unless we get hardcore, we're going to be murdered, right? So um, I spoke with the founding uh, the founder of the the, the communist party of the Philippines. He said that Indonesia, nineteen sixty five, led him to take a more Maoist um, guerrilla approach. Um, Throughout Latin America, there was this debate: Well, like, should we stay with the sort of soft, Moscow-aligned um, line, uh, or should we take the more Che Guevara uh, approach? And a lot of people chose the Che Guevara approach because of what they saw over in Indonesia. Um, the Cultural Revolution, no, not like caused by uh, in any way by Indonesia, talked a lot about what had happened two years previously uh, in Indonesia. So. Mao's, uh, uh, you know, Red Guards talked a lot about, you know, the possibility of ambush from, you know, hidden bourgeois forces. Um, and I don't think, you know, in that, in that didn't, I don't think those lessons, you know, ultimately were great either, right? I mean, what was the, what was the, the, the lineage of, 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 of the people that took that um, approach? Um, most, I think a lot of people in the English speaking world are, you know, don't love so much the regimes that came out of them or, if, you know, if any did come out of them. So <laughs> I find the the lessons hard to process. I'm still trying to think about what it really means uh, for the left, uh, for politics in general, um, for people acting uh, uh, um, politically in 2020. Um, I th- like, I, I st- like, I'm I really, I don't know. I'm still, I think it's it's such a huge thing that we need to put back into our understanding of how we got here um, uh, and, and as far as I'm concerned, at least internally, mentally, that task has been so big that I haven't been able to, to get on to the next one and try to figure out what it means as to what anybody should do. But I'd be really grateful to hear if anybody else knows.
1: So one of the things that really struck, one of the many things that struck me about your book was your discussion of the Khmer Rouge's uh, lessons, lessons that the Khmer Rouge drew from uh, what took place. Could you just briefly say something about that?
4: Yeah, exactly. That was one more group that, uh, according to, uh, you know, some, the best scholarship, um, also decided, okay, no, 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 there's no more, there's no more of this, you know, participating in a broader political system. Um, Pol Pot uh, reportedly, as a result of what he saw in Indonesia in 1965-66, decided uh, also to take a much more hardline path. Now, unlike um, sort of the other people I mentioned, they were never really the, the most um well organized or or thoughtful or compassionate group but there's a lot of evidence that they took a turn even further towards extremism as a result of what they saw in in indonesia thank you Kritika, please
3: um yeah i I'm a little bit pessimistic about the legacy. I think to me, the biggest lesson of 65 and 66 is it's so easy to forget. Forgetting is the default option. Um, A lot of people in Indonesia to this day are so traumatized even though some kind of history related to 65 is just, you know, one, they're one degree removed from it might happen to their families. The number of people involved is so huge. And, you know, I have met a huge number of really brave artists and activists um, fighting to keep it alive anyway, but I think it's just a it's just a really big lesson in in collective forgetting. And I think the ability to remember dark episodes in historical past is a privilege. Like, and and it's it's definitely something we should think about today because I think um, you know I'm an, I'm back in America now, and every day feels like an emergency. And it's you know in some you one hopes that this the lessons of this moment will not be forget forgotten. Um, you know too much to, to, to keep track of the kids we locking up in cages and the deportations and the police killings but I think if and if Indonesia has shown anything there's no crime that's too big for a society to just collectively forget it's really easy to do so um I, that being said I think you know in a lot of countries don't uh, the threat that Indonesian activists have where you can go to jail just because of an accused accusation of being in the Pekai even today. So, you know, it kind of reinforces that, you know, remembering and trying to keep historical legacy alive is a privilege. I would say on the whole, I'm not, um, I'm not super optimistic at this time that it will get its due within Indonesia based on my limited experience there over the last four years. And I would love to be proven wrong.
1: I think all of us would like you to be proven wrong on that front yes thank you Kritika. john please
2: john we can't hear you Um, well i guess one thing to add would be that we can learn from the experience of the indonesian communist party that is it did really well it for over this sort of 20 year period from the time of the start of the Indonesian Revolution, the struggle against Dutch colonialism in the late 1940s, and then the early years of independence, it did very well. Um, And yet it was still capable of being defeated, that even a party that big, um, that popular, and, and sort of one of the reasons that they were vulnerable was because they just thought we're too big, You know we've got too many people support us, even within the military. Um, So I think it's important to um, not take the lesson that let's say the Khmer Rouge did, as as Vincent was talking about, which is to say, you know, well, the the only thing you need, what you have to do is armed struggle. Um, That that isn't. I mean, it's clear over the last 55 years, um, at the very least, that that really isn't um, uh, a possibility. The um, But we still have to think about what to do about the military. And uh, the US military, the Indonesian military, all of these militaries that are just there ready to crush um, the uh, popular movements that, that have been the, the and, I think it's still important to to see the United States as the center of this kind of um, global police and army and paramilitary kind of uh, formation, which is really destroying a lot of um, popular movements around the world. And so it's important for um, people in the United States to learn about that and and to see, I mean, when people are talking about, let's say, defunding the police in the United States now, um, they uh, they should be able to see that as part of an international struggle against all kinds of, you know, militarism um, and a, a creation of more sort of peaceful relations between people and between states.
1: Thank you, John. Joe, you wanted to say something.
0: Yeah, I wanted to make a brief comment and uh, offer a question and then start to welcome in a number. We have a number of very thoughtful questions that have been in the chat box and I'll call on a few folks. uh, So if you are Charles, Glenn, Michael, uh, probably coming up on you soon. Um, I mean, my question, it could really could be for anyone, but I'm thinking about you, you John, uh, specifically because of the title of your first book. the pretext to mass murder, and I'd like to hear more, a little more about the pretext aspect of it. To what degree, you know, you, you know, the uh, the kind of so-called coup attempt was a pretext, and just more through that lens about the U.S. role in general. But I wanted to preface, um, you know, the the question, or I guess postface, the qu- the question here, with just a quote from a passage that's in uh, this really remarkable book. I'm sure you're all familiar with William Bloom's Killing Hope. Uh, which you know has just a few short entries on in Indonesia. It's kind of a chronicle of like hundreds of or dozens, probably hundreds of American military interventions over and covert around the world. Highly recommend it uh, to get some. But the what what the passage I wanted to share is you know there there are two quotes he starts his chapter on in Indonesia with both from ones from Time magazine, ones from the New York Times, not not minor marginal publications within the United States. These are quotes from their paper in '65 and '66. And they capture you know the grisly gruesome nature of the violence um uh, in again mainstream publications within the united states at the time um just to give one i'll just read one of them the time magazine quote armed with wide bladed knives and called parangs Muslim bands crept at night into the homes of communists killing entire families travelers tell of small rivers and streams that have been literally clogged with bodies river transportation has at places been seriously impeded. Um, I mean, it just, and and the other one from the New York Times is, you know, talks about, you know, hundreds of communists or suspected communists being herded into the town's botanical garden and mowed down with a machine gun. And I mean, I wanted to just read that for those who aren't familiar with this history, just, and who haven't seen an act of killing, just the, 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 the gruesome scope and open kind of brazenness of this violence really is just bone chilling. I mean, that film, Really did uh, disturb me deeply. We saw it just recently, but I guess my question is: This wasn't like a secret and like a secret, secret. It was kind of like an open secret. And I guess my question is: How did the U.S. ruling class or establishment relate to this at the time, or perhaps before it happened? And but then also, what about the left in the U.S.? I mean, by sixty-five and sixty-six, it's not as though you know, we're not, it's not 1955 where to be, you know, you know, where, or, or it's, I mean, there has been some break breaking in the new left from kind of the anti-communism of before some emergence, right, of the kind of later waves of the civil rights movement, black power. I mean, we're not quite at the Black Panthers yet, but maybe, you know, I'm kind of curious, how, how did this event resonate uh, within the United States at the time? And particularly, I mean, I'm interested also not only in its resonance, but in its kind of the, the causal links between u s actions and and the actual bloodletting, uh, particularly perhaps ties the u s military had to the Indonesian military and things of that nature, uh, I, I thought maybe to pitch it to you, John, but I, I'd be welcome uh, any anyone's comments on it. Thank you
2: yeah, there's a lot there, and so I'm just I'll answer just a little bit, and then maybe Vincent and Kritika can add some more. Um, I guess um, you're you're right to call it an open secret, and since many of the people uh, listening to this have seen Joshua Oppenheimer's films, I'll, I'll mention that you know both films are set in North Sumatra where there were large plantations um, for rubber and tobacco and other uh, items for export, and it had been a heavily commercialized area since the late 1800s. Uh, for export processing and it was during that period from after independence up to 1965 that the plantation workers were really well organized and they were organized under the communist party so that's not in Oppenheimer's films and I'm not faulting the films for not including that whole story because what's important is the films get us to think about it. get us interested in it. Um, So there's that, um, those workers were massacred. And in a sense, those militias were also the militias that had been involved in strike breaking before. So the army had been disciplining and attacking the plantation workers in that area for years before 1965, but the workers were very strong and they had protection of the party. The party was crucial for sort of uh, more universalizing their particular struggle and getting other sectors of the society to support their actions. And so, uh, you know, the governor of North Sumatra at the time um, who disappeared after October 1st um, was an army officer and he helped protect these workers and their actions. And so it was really important that kind of um, the way the party could help any individual sectoral struggles. Um, so when the workers get attacked, it's an open secret, but still, if you and you'll see it in Oppenheimer's films, some of the violence is open, but a lot of it is a matter of rounding people up and then killing them in by the two places you see, the, at least in the films, is um, by the river at night, um, and then in this office downtown um, of the Pamuda Panchasila group. And both of them were slightly out of you know, regular vision. And so people could sort of pretend that, you know, people could say, I, I didn't know about it, I didn't see it and so forth. Um, so people knew some of the killings were done in open in, in the streets, but the large scale killing was done slightly with some discretion in mind, um, and that was a pattern throughout the country. Disappearances—it was the pattern, and this, what Vincent's book shows is that the sort of the strategy of disappearances that you get in Latin America that have become really so well known in Latin America originate with, um, at least it, it, it seems that way that, that you know. The Latin American militaries learned okay, if you're going to destroy a movement in this way, disappearances is a very effective tool, not just sort of massacre people right in the street or hold spectacular displays, but kidnap them, hold them, and then massacre them somewhat out of sight um, so as not to disturb other people. Other people can go about their business. Um, as if it's not all happening. So that would be. Um, I didn't touch upon a lot of other things in your uh, question, but I think I've spoken long enough.
0: Sure, thanks, John. Uh, I don't know if Vincent would want to add a word about the the U the specific U.S. role. I mean, I asked about the U.S. left, but I'm particularly interested in the in the U.S. Uh, kind of ruling class role too. For the you know, many of us I think watching participating from the U.S. today, so.
4: Yeah, so I think I'll, I'm probably best uh, place to answer your question about the 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 mainstream press in the United States because that's what where I've worked for most of my adult life. Um, there was a brief and euphoric celebration of the destruction of the Communist Party, um, as John Russo points out in pretext for mass murder. This was there was there was a, there was a lot of distortion going on. There was this sort of Orientalist um, um, claim that oh well, this is the kind of thing that they do over there, but basically it was a, to the extent that people talked about it, there was a, you know, it was a, it was a big victory for um, the United States as, as, as even liberal pol- uh, publications saw it. And then it kind of went away because the Vietnam was the thing that took over in the national consequence because actual Americans were um, um, have, putting their lives on the line over there and it was a big quagmire and we ultimately lost. Um, but, um, responsibility for the I mean, I think it's really important. I think, you know, john already explained just how deep, deeply involved the United States was. But I mean, at at every point in in this mass murder, the United States was getting um, updates on what was happening and then making it clear to the military that well, no, 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 if you want to be a part of this global order, that will be very beneficial for you financially and politically, Uh, you need to crush the Communist Party, and that was a pretty clear message that you know keep killing those people. i um, really famously one. A uh, couple decades later, one um, employee of the embassy said that he had handed over kill lists to the military so that they could um, they could know exactly which people they needed to kill. But that was you know just one part of a very large and obvious um, push for this violence that came from. The most powerful country in history, and and then when they when they got the victory they wanted, it was celebrated by the ruling class as a victory. And um, U.S. corporations poured into Jakarta to have you know um, conferences about all the great business opportunities that were lying in front of them, and then they exploited those opportunities. Um, uh, it's it's not a story with a really uplifting story, but it's
0: it's a familiar one across uh, the 20th century. Absolutely, Kritika, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too and then we'll take uh, some questions from the audience. Um,
3: yeah, uh, I just wanna talk briefly about the ongoing role of declassification and figuring out what exactly happened in 65 and 66. Um, in terms of it being an open secret, yeah, it was, you know, as, as um, John Vincent said, it was in the news, this coup was not um, a secret and, and even some of the killings were not, um, but, Just in 2017, tens of thousands of um, US files from the embassy in Jakarta were declassified as part of the ongoing work of the National Declassification Center. And they really fleshed out in further detail how um, the US embassy was closely monitoring these developments and not just and kind of commenting with approval on some of them. Um, and part the, the and someone in the comments asked about Barack Obama's role. This came out of an executive order that Barack Obama issued in 2009 to move this process along. Um, we have still not seen, and we might never see, um, the full extent of the CIA files from this period, which would give us a much fuller picture. And it's, it seems even unlikely that we'll see the Indonesian um, side of these because they don't have a similar declassification process, but it's definitely worth noting that just in the last decade, so many thousands of files have been declassified that shed light into the U.S. role in this, that their, you know, the historical record is still in process.
0: That's, that's really good to know, and, and uh, I'm glad we have people working that record as we speak. All right, let's let's bring in a couple uh, Joe and Joe, do you have a comment or you want to make on uh, the proceedings before I go to our audience members no. or should we just bring some folks in.
1: Please bring folks in.
0: Okay, great. I'm going to bring folks in three to time so we can get a few comments out there rather than, uh, you know, to get a diversity of voices here as we move into our second hour. Uh, I would like to call call on Kira to ask her question. After that, we'll have uh, uh, Michael and Glenn, uh, please. Kira, are you there? Akira, also a co-producer of Shelter and Solidarity. Good to see you, Akira.
3: Hi, Joe. Thank you for the introduction. I just have a real quick question, mostly for Kritika. Given the severe environmental challenges Indonesia is facing right now and the current political climate, how can movements in Indonesia be making progress without using concepts we normally hear on the left here with like capitalist growth and identifying environmental justice with social class? It's a it's a really tricky um, and fine line. I think the way the experience activists have navigated it is through personal relationships, because a lot of the reasons they get arrested as communists for doing environmental activism is because they, you know, piss off a big corporation like Sinarmas, or they get in a tiff with a local leader. And Indonesian activists are really really good at navigating those relationships, and I think reflexively none of them not many of them would use terms like capitalism they tend to focus on kind of concrete um, topics at hand like specific human rights abuses or specific um, you know land encroachments I think they try not to put it into a broader kind of leftist vernacular to get their to to get their goals done but I would just definitely say that like Indonesia is not you know it's not a super Like gun violence, for example, is not super common there, but the amount of it's activism for the environment remains a super violent undertaking, and a lot of people get disappeared or killed to this day.
0: Michael, are you there, Michael? And then Glenn. Yeah. um,
1: What roles did the exploration and extraction of oil and other resources and the control of shipping lanes? Play in Southeast Asia in the 60s. I'm familiar with the resource quest today, but I'm wondering in the 60s, what was the mindset in relation to getting at what was
0: potentially thought to be there? Yeah, someone want to take that? What was the role of this extractivism, this, uh, you know. Uh, and oil industries in, in relationship to the repressions?
2: Go ahead, Vincent.
0: Sure, so um,
4: yeah, so um, oil was really important, right? Um, Indonesia was, and uh, in, in ultimately mining became really important too. Although a lot of that discovery of the gold that was there in West Papua didn't happen until a little bit after um, 1965. But Bradley Simpson in uh, his really important book, Economist Guns with Guns, Reconstructs something that happens in the very months that the mass murders are taking place, and he and he sort of sets um, uses this sometimes to knock down a counterfactual that sometimes is put forward. It's a very silly argument that people say, "Well, well, what could the United States have done? Uh, they didn't control the Indonesian military, um, which makes no sense because they were encouraging it." But um, proof of how silly that argument is is that precisely as the mass murders are taking place. The nascent government led by General Suharto is discussing the possibility of keeping Indonesian national control over the oil industry. And the entire mechanism of the U.S. foreign policy establishment and all of the the U.S.'s allies in the region, I'm forgetting the countries, but I know Japan uh, got involved, were activated to make it very clear to Suharto, no, 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 American corporations will have access to that oil. And immediately they got what they wanted. They were very, very successful at getting that policy overturned um, uh, so if there was any uh, if there was any interest in stopping the murders, then it, seem, you, it, it seems that some kind of pressure could have been worthwhile as well. So, you know, when U.S foreign policy officials talked about Indonesia or Vietnam or any country in Southeast Asia, at the time they, 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 they usually talked about both. They usually talked about um, geopolitics. This country is important because of the domino theory and communism and uh, the Cold War. but also this country has XYZ natural resource. Um, and that, they were quite explicit about that um, behind the scenes.
0: Great, thanks for that, Vincent. Um, if no one else wants to respond to that question, then we'll, we'll move on to Glenn. Uh, yeah,
5: so John ruser uh, raised the question of the problem of the military. And I was wondering what work the, uh, the PKI did in the military in terms of organizing. Uh, And then the second question is, you know, it's hard not to notice the contrast between what happened in Indonesia and what happened in Vietnam. Uh, You know, in in Indonesia, there was a defeat, but in Vietnam, there was a victory for the left. And, uh, you know, it's hard not to notice that in Vietnam, they they had armed struggle. So it would seem like you'd have to combine the great work that the PKI did in mass organizations, which was really phenomenal. Uh, with figuring out some way to eventually seize power. Because if you don't seize power, you get the Jakarta method, right? And the Jakarta method was used in Chile and in many other countries. So I, I don't see how you avoid that kind of issue of avoiding the Jakarta method,
0: unless you take power. So. A crucial question, Glenn, thanks for posing it.
2: I would emphasize that we see the communist parties as products of history, and um, that their sort of decisions are constrained by the circumstances in which they're in. The Vietnamese Communist Party is able to build a state on its own um, in these long years of struggle uh, against the Japanese uh, against the Japanese occupation in the. Early 1940s to 1945, and then against the French from 45 to 54, and so the Vietnamese Communist Party really is, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's. The political science has use the term state capacity, that is, it's able to uh, mobilize a lot of resources and to spend those resources um, over those years, um, and it's. The armed struggle then is sort of inherent in the nature of how it's forming as a state, how it's leading a state during those years from the early 1940s up to 54. During those same years, the PKI was, didn't do that. And so the nature of the PKI after Indonesian independence in 1949 is completely different. And it's um, a party that was really formed by its particular kind of participation in the struggle against the Dutch in the late 1940s from 45 up until 49. And it's that time when it really does become fairly popular and it organizes within the military at that time, but it doesn't lead the military. It doesn't lead the army, but it has certain officers within the army, uh, within this sort of, rather loosely formed um, kind of freewheeling armed struggle against the Dutch in the late 40s. Um, So that after independence, after 1949, it still has those contacts within the army. And so as it's organizing the workers and peasants, it's also organizing the soldiers, Um, but it doesn't control the army. And and that was its sort of downfall. It was trying to in 1965 use those officers in the army to help it out, and it wound up being the um, jabak, the Indonesian tra- trapped uh, in that um, very sort of in a in a surprising way. They didn't expect that uh, result. But so it's it's for any communist party. It's not like a question of just. Ballot or bullet, but how it is as a kind of whole social formation formed by historical events. I guess that would be how I would approach it. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Great. If anyone else would like to speak to this, this crucial question of the, the question of the military. Um, you're welcome to step in to that and if or Vincent or, or Joe, Joan Evans wants to address that.
4: And maybe I'll just please. I'll just agree really quickly with John that in the PKI was really between a rock and a hard place uh, in the last years between that, uh, before 1965. Like the question of ballot or bullet. I mean, in you know, the CIA recognized back in 1958 that probably the PKI would have won elections had they continued. Um, but after that, after you have the 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 really active training of the military by the U.S. Um, after it becomes clear that the only really way to participate in Indonesian politics is to back Sukarno, they, it was really there. You know, you know, it's easy to say take power, but they, they like they kind of understandably decided that their best strategy was to organize mass support because they were really limited by the um, the the very small amount of uh, space for them to operate. Because of global circumstances and domestic circumstances, but I think that the first point is not really wrong right like if if you know you don't have to be Pol pot to come away from all this thinking, perhaps I was a bit dismissive of that point earlier. Um, that you do have to account for the possibility that you can lose, you have to account for the possibility that someone might come for you and what's going to happen in that case, so I think that you know being you know thinking a little bit about self defense in the long term and. Um, um looking at countries like china and vietnam depending on whether or not you like the systems that are in place there uh, as countries that ultimately survived the cold war i think is um i think it is a reasonable point that uh that you made
0: crucially i mean it seems a crucial question in the united states as well right with such a heavily militarized and, and armed society um so we have let's take three at once in a row and then pitch all three to our panels so that we can we can optimize the maximize the number of voices and then we'll go back to joe and for closing comments and as we we do approach the 90 minute mark we can go a few minutes over but we do like to keep our promises when we can part i have parker on the list followed by seren followed by uh, a shelter and solidarity regular bruce parker
6: uh hi so i guess i'll try to keep this short
2: and sweet, but uh, sort of the overall kind of of what I'm trying to ask is, how much is this a cautionary tale for sort of the modern American left? Could, you know, you have in the streets out and proud sort of uh, far right groups and fascist groups getting support from the president on national television. You know, is this something, I guess, that could happen here? And not only that, could could sort of uh, how you mentioned how the left in Indonesia has kind of faded out slowly to the almost to the point of non-existence. Could something happen like that here as well with the new American left?
0: Great, and we'll take uh, Seren, Bruce, and then we will also take, I, I'm sorry, I, to Charles for neglecting him. He had such a good question that needed to be at the end. So we'll go Seren, Bruce, and then Charles. Seren? Thanks, Joe.
6: I was—I um, guess—I have a question that's similar to Parker's uh, in some respects. From the description that John provided of the uh, Indonesian Communist Party, it suggests a certain organizational sophistication that we don't commonly associate with communist parties of that period. The capacity to deal with an incredibly diverse society to engage major religious forces within its uh, society and to actually achieve hegemony as in not dominance but um, as in influence in these entities. Um, To what extent is that a, a product of their indigenous experience? Or uh, to what extent is it influenced by, say, their ties to their colonial uh, uh, countries, uh, including, say, the Dutch Communists, much like, say, the Portuguese Communist Party influenced parties like Frelimo and MPLA, and that sort of influenced the Portuguese Communist Party in reverse as well. So that's generally my question. Where does this sophistication come from? Okay, I'll pause.
7: Okay, so um, hi everybody. My my question approaches it from the U.S. ruling class side and the constraints and the possibilities. I guess of electoral politics. Um, I was not aware, Victor, that um, Obama's father participated in the massacre, but it sure explains a lot. And and you know maybe the subtitle "Dreams for My Father" should be "Nightmares for My Stepfather." Um, but you know, I mean, he, he was very circumspect even in the autobiography, even early in his political career, right? So that's why I asked the question, like what can somebody who has intimate knowledge of the violence um, and experience life in that country at a very impressionable age, you know, what were the possibilities and the constraints on him during his presidency? Did we see any significant break from default US uh, approach to foreign policy in general, particularly thinking about Indonesia?
0: Great. And last but not least, we have Charles, uh, who, uh, who has, a, I think, a profound question as well.
2: Uh, yeah, it's, it's great to see you all, and thanks for organizing this. Um, Joe and John um, and, and some other people on this call have personally witnessed uh, the, the echoes of the 65 coup in Indonesia in Timor-Leste. And that's one of a number of places where the violent pattern that was established in 65 was played out uh, against the Chinese and even still today against people in West Papua.
1: I'm wondering if you think this is gonna go on forever. I mean, Suharto's been out of office for 20 years. Uh, what, How and when is it ever going to end?
0: Okay, we have a full plate of questions there. Um, I don't know who would like to take uh, what first, but we have... Uh, you know Parker on U.S. comparisons, Siren on the particular diversity and complexity navigated by the PKI and the possible links to uh, the origins of that. Bruce on the Obama connection and Charles on when will it end? Pick your pick your entree, folks. Uh, lots to lots to choose from here.
2: Maybe Kritika, you want to go first?
3: Sure. Um... I'm Happy to talk to the Obama um, connection briefly. As I mentioned, he was really um, he was really instrumental in in the declassification, but also he staked out a very distinctive foreign policy that was kind of unique in recent US presidencies, where he used declassification as an active tool of diplomacy, including in Latin America, um, where he had John Kerry deliver. Declassified CIA files to Chile and Argentina respectively. And this kind of gesture um, of trying not to uh, apologize per se but try to acknowledge at least and, and in some way neutralize some of the things, the horrible things that American foreign policy has done in so many countries was a really different tone of American diplomacy. So I don't think it's an accident that he's the president who got this uh, declassification process started for Indonesia. Um, it probably will not be surprising anyone here that declassification is greatly diminished under the Trump administration. Um, and I mean, it's not a state to start again, but that is part of the Obama role who's to say if his childhood shaped his foreign policy views on this, but that was his unique contribution. Um, to. This. And He did visit Indonesia during his presidency. It was well received, but he didn't comment on 1965 too directly because it's an obvious hot button issue. So there's limits on what a president can risk.
0: Thank you. Still lots on the table there. I also do wanna point out on the Obama front, Linda just posted in the chat box, a link to an excellent critique, uh, left critique of Obama's memoir that addresses this issues and others. It's called Rhetoric and Silence in Barack Obama's Dreams of My Father, published in Cultural Logic, a good Marxist literary journal, highly recommend it And the work of Barbara Foley in general, Uh, just buying some time for our our noble panel here. Uh, John, Vincent uh, or Joe, would you like to take from uh, the other questions on the table?
2: You can go ahead, Vincent.
0: Well, yeah, you know, I, okay, sure. So um,
4: I'll go I'll go to the U.S. Um, side, too. They're both, both issues. Um, as I understood it, the first question was kind of like, could this happen in the United States? The far right's in the streets. There's kind of death squad looking guys uh, attacking BLM. Could this happen in America? Um, I don't, I think that the, cir- the circumstances are very different in the United States right now. I think that um, a very rich country, the hegemon is in a very different um, uh, condition than, than uh, countries in Latin America were in the Cold War that Indonesia was in 1965. I don't see this, you know, I don't see people being rounded up and executed tomorrow. However, what I will say is that everybody that I spoke to whose loved ones were killed in an anti-communist mass murder in the 20th century, whether this is Guatemala, Chile, Brazil, Indonesia, they all told me that one year before it happened, they thought it could never happen to them. And, and so that's not to say that I think that, just be, that I'm wrong in thinking that it's not gonna happen in the United States, but that being cautious about possibilities and keeping an eye on who's in power and all of the, all of the, the paths that lie before a certain political movement uh, always makes sense. You know, never take it for granted that the bad things in history happened back then and no, they don't happen anymore. Um, I think that uh, uh, that lesson is something that uh, applies to America and a lot of other countries right now. And then really quickly on Obama, I think it was really interesting um, the, the, the way that the other aspect, I mean, uh, despite uh, the, the declassification uh, process that Kritika pointed to, what I found really striking was the way that in Dreams of My Father he is seems quite perceptive about the sort of evils of what the US has been doing in Indonesia. He points to the racism at the embassy. He talks about the spies that are everywhere. And I kind of look at it as well, like, can you enter the US presidency with the kind of ideas that will change what the US presidency is? Or do you get there and you look around and there's only a couple of buttons and you have to push the buttons that are on the dashboard. And those buttons are bomb and invade and sanctions and use this largest military in the history of the world. So while uh, a lot was a bit different, of course he still you know, he ran as an anti-war president, he promised to close Guantanamo Bay. And then at the end of eight years, he's bombing eight countries that most Americans don't even know are being bombed. So um, for me, the lesson that I drew from his president is much more about the nature of the presidency itself. Like what can you even go into it? Um, you know, if he were still sort of an anti-imperialist shaped by, his experiences in in the late 60s in Indonesia, could he have done, could he have changed what the presidency is in his eight years? Because whoever it was that answered
0: did not, I think. Very interesting. Yeah, John, John Rusey, lots to take from, please go ahead. I'll
2: pick up on the questions of um, Sirin first and then Charlie. so I do think it is important to look at the PKI as a kind of indigenous Indonesian communist party and that a lot of the literature about it has been about its you know, Maoism um, or its Stalinism um, or you know, it's, it's taking these kinds of, um, uh, you know, how, it, how it fit into the international communist movement Um, Without looking at it as a kind of, I mean, one chapter of my book is trying to show it as a Javanese um, organization that grew up out of the particularities of um, class conflict in Java uh, during the colonial period and then during the Japanese period and uh, the struggle against the Dutch in the late 1940s, that all of that shaped the party and it had a kind of ethos about how to behave, you know, what? what is a good, you know, how do you be a good communist, you know? And that sense of ethics is rooted in the, the culture there and that the leaders of the party were people who were actually not that well versed in Marxist-Leninism, um, but they were really well versed in how to communicate with um, other Javanese and um, and then translate that into an Indonesian uh, national identity. And so there's a lot going on at the grassroots and we're only now just sort of beginning to uncover that, that other story beyond the sort of party literature, beyond the formulation. So much of what's written about the PKI is just based upon the party published literature, which doesn't give you a good picture of what's going on on the ground and and why people are joining and what what it means to the the people who are part of the party. So there's another really side, like um, the kind of story that you get in Vivian Gornick's book on the American Communist Party. It hasn't been done for the PKI. And I'm trying to get a a little bit at that um, in the work that I'm doing now. on um, Charlie's question, something that I, didn't, I haven't mentioned yet in this forum, but which I think is really important, and again it, it deals with sort of the particularities of Indonesia, is that the Indonesian army is a very, it has a strange structure that a lot of people don't really grasp um, because it has a parallel state. That is, the, the, you have a civilian bureaucracy of, um, you know, governors and mayors of cities and district chiefs of so bupati, and so on, um, however you want to translate bupati, um, You have all of these people who are civilians, theoretically, and then next to it, you have a parallel bureaucracy of the army and they have active duty troops stationed in every small, subdivision of the country and it's a permanent structure that began back in the late 1950s early 1960s and then after 65 it just became solidified and amongst Indonesians it's treated just as part of the landscape it's just natural and and yet it is um, it produces a lot of strange dynamics within Indonesian politics it could constrains what the president does, what any politician does, what any political party does. And political parties don't make an issue. They don't challenge it. Just in the same way, you know, Vincent uh, was speaking about the way, you know, the US president is sort of constrained by uh, sort of existing military uh, structure. In Indonesia, it's it's very much uh, sort of even more so because the army has this presence, permanent presence. Of, and and it means that they are constantly surveilling people. Um, they're, they're sort of a supra police force. And it makes, um, you know, Kritika was talking before about how there isn't a left, and it's really difficult to get any kind of alternative politics going when the army has this kind of constant, everyday unchallenged authority over the civil society. And that is very much a product of 65. It is what Charlie called um, an echo. Um, It's a a sort of ongoing, maybe an echo is too weak of a word. It's sort of an ongoing blaring trumpet uh, that is affecting everything about Indonesian politics.
0: Thank you all. I think uh, we're, ra- we're moving towards wrapping up. So I wanna kick things back to, to Joe Nevins for, for closing comment or uh, or question uh, for our guests.
1: Thanks, Joe. I mean, before we leave, I just wanna give our guests, the three guests, Vincent, Kritika, and John, a chance to, if you have any closing comments, anything you haven't been able to say um, that you'd like to share with us. If you don't, that's fine. But if you do, we wanna provide this opening. Any last thoughts or something you didn't get to say earlier?
2: Um, I'm good. Yeah.
1: Okay. You know, you've given us a lot of really uh, valuable food for thought. And there's a lot of things that haunt me about what you've shared with us tonight. Um, But one of the things that's come out is, you know, sort of animated by Charlie, Charles Shiner's question. I should mention, Charlie is the founder of the East Timor. Uh, Indonesia Action Network. really appreciate the work that Charlie's done over a very, very long period of time. So it's great to have you here, Charlie. Um, I should, you know, Charlie's raised sort of the ultimate question of Lenin or, you know, if you use the US version, the $64,000 question, for those of you old enough to remember that game show. And that question is, what is to be done? Of course, what is to be done is manyfold. But one of the things that comes out of this conversation that has to be done is, uh, challenging of US militarism, right? In the most fundamental way. And we talk about Gramscian, Gramscian project, there it is, right? Just how dominant, how commonsensical US militarism is across the very narrow political spectrum, whether we're talking about Obama, Trump, or Joe Biden, right? There are obviously differences, but in a lot of ways, especially when we're, what we're talking about tonight was more important the similarities. Uh, We don't face the challenges that people face in Indonesia, given that that sort of dual structure that John just talked about. There are more openings, which is not to say the challenge isn't huge. Uh, It is huge, but that has to be central to any progressive, even liberal project in the United States. Certainly a left project is challenging that. So I I thank you all for pushing us to think about that. More narrowly, I I thank you for joining us this evening, sharing your insights and uh, experiences. And I thank you all for the the great work that you've done and continue to do. And we can only hope that you continue to uh, do what you've been doing. So thanks for for teaching us uh, and for inspiring us uh, to move forward. So I'll stop there, Joe, and hand back things to you.
0: Thank you, Joe, thank you, Vincent, John, Critica, and everyone who has participated in making this such a, a rich discussion. So much to think about, so much to dive into. Um, I wanna point out that Shelter and Solidarity is now in a twice a month format. We've moved from, we did 22 weeks without a break over the summer, but some of us are on academic schedules, right? A Tim, Tim Shear co-producer wiping his brow and he's not the only one. Uh, So we will be back here October 15th, sticking with Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard. We will have another uh, panel of terrific guests engaging very related topics. We will be joined by Greg Grandin, 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner, author of, among other books, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, also someone who has written very much on the workings of imperialism in Latin America and in other places, Um, He will be joined by Avi Chomsky, also a scholar activist, author of many books and engaging issues of imperialism and political economy, as well as immigration, uh, including the the book Undocumented, and They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration. Uh, That will be October 15th here Thursday night in two weeks, and we hope you will join us then and we hope you also will join and share the uh, recorded version of this program with your networks. We don't have that million dollar propaganda apparatus that some do, we need to do it the old fashioned way with even with the new tools, Zoom and YouTube. So please do help us in sharing shelter and solidarity with those who you think could benefit and those who you think would be interested. And frankly, those who you think might wanna come on the show as well. We are always open to your participation. I wanna thank my co-producers, Seren Moodliar, Kira Moodliar, Linda Liu, Tim Sheard, Mark Soderstrom, and also our co-sponsors in Cuentro Cinco, known affectionately as E5, an organizing hub in downtown Boston, as well as Community Church of Boston, our newest co-sponsor, Hardball Press, a publisher of Working Class Stories, held down by Tim Sheard and company, and also the journal, uh, Shelter, the the journal uh, Socialism and Democracy, a research journal for left activists, organizers, and builders of social movements. Um, Hope to see you in two weeks. Until then, as we say here at Shelter and Solidarity, stay safe, stay engaged, and stay together. See you in a couple weeks.